When I used to work in Broadway, I had a rule which was fast to view, slow to recommend. So I would go and see lots and lots of shows. I would do a lot of things. I would be in the industry, but I wouldn't recommend investors and producers came to a show until I really felt this made sense. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast, hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Hello and welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Lapata. Thank you very much for joining me. My guest today is someone that I've known for three or four years. We were introduced at that time. Uh, he's based in New York, and, and after our first conversation, in, indeed during our first conversation, he started suggesting who I should meet and making introductions for me. He's really one of the people that's opened up a really strong and, and treasured, valued network for me in the United States. So he practices what he preaches. What he preaches is pretty much uh, the same content as me or the same topic as me, and it's always great to get together with people who I respect, who are in the same space, and share ideas. And that's what we've done on this particular podcast. So my guest is Michael Roderick. He's the host of the Access to Anyone podcast, something I've been on a, a guest on a couple of times, uh, and it's a podcast which shows you how to get to know anyone you want in business and in life using the techniques that Michael developed from his own experience. Michael went from being a high school English teacher to be being a Broadway producer in under two years. He, he was involved in shows like uh, Scottsboro Boys and American Idiot, two that I really enjoy, uh, and we touch on that in our conversation as well. While many people, when they think about a topic of why would people recommend you, would start by looking at what they have to do to get recommended, my first question to Michael flipped the coin. And I felt that before you worry about what you need to do to be recommended, you need to understand why people would recommend you. Yeah, well, one of the things that I always like to say about this is that people love to feel useful. They hate to feel used. And ultimately, if somebody's going to be recommending you, going to be recommending your service, they want to feel useful. They want to feel like they are actually bringing something to their network, to the people within their, within their world. So what I find happens very, very often is that people will focus on what it is that they do. And they'll basically be like, okay, well, let me like, break down exactly what I do and here's how I do it. And here's, you know, here's how to refer me and all of these different types of things. And what they want to do is I refer to it as giving yourself an F. What they want to do is they want to talk about what they do for their clients, yeah. right? What is the thing that you're actually doing for somebody else? How are you breaking it down so that if somebody hears it, they say, Oh Yeah. I know somebody who is struggling with that particular challenge and could really use that help and that support. And the more that you craft your description, your way of discussing what you do in the context of what you're doing for the client, the problem that you're actually solving, the more likely somebody's going to want to recommend you because they're going to feel like the savior when their friend is complaining about whatever that issue is and say, oh, yes, I know somebody who can help you with that. I know somebody who can support that. But most of the time, the mistake that I see is we spend far too much time trying to explain to people what we do, how we do it, what our background is, what our experience is, how many years we worked in a particular industry, when none of that really helps us from a referral standpoint. Yeah, I, I, I love that. I love that uh, people like to feel useful. They don't like to feel used. I think that really gets to the nub of it um, because there is that fear that people have. And it's, 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 it's genuine in some cases if people, you know, really don't balance this out and, and only think of themselves. Um, but there's that fear that you could be seen to be a burden to other people, a drain on other people if you're constantly asking for help. Um, 
And this point about really helping people understand the benefits uh, of what you do and the impact it will have on other people. I, when I teach referral strategy to sales teams, I have a model for the message that is problem, solution, benefit. What problem you solve, mm -hmm. how you do it, not in the great detail, but what it involves. And then as a result, dot, dot, dot. Um, and I talk about a virtuous triangle. Um, and a good recommendation means that the person uh, being recommended wins as a result. The person who's having the recommendation given to them benefits as a result. And therefore, as the person making the recommendation, you, you're a winner in both their eyes. And I think that really goes to the mm -hmm. nub of what you're saying. Think of all parties. And when you're asking for that introduction, don't make it about you, make it about them. Exactly. So, so once we understand that, and let's stick within the the psychology of the person uh, making the introduction, mm -hmm. even if we can make it more uh, a, a more natural process, an easier thing to give, something that makes more sense to them, yep. rather than just asking a, for a favour, there are still many people who are more inclined to refer than others or recommend. Some people mm -hmm. some people will, will, will recommend you within minutes of meeting you. And I know that there are, it, it, it does pay me to some degree, I'll be honest, but there are networking trainers who will say, don't ask what do you do, ask how can I help you? And I think, okay, get to know someone <laughs> first. Um, I, and exactly. When, when someone opens with that with me, I, I really want to get out of that conversation straight away because I'm thinking, call me a cynic, you don't know me, why would you want to help me to that degree? Um, but, mm -hmm. but why is it that, okay, some people are doing that because they've been taught that's how to open a conversation. Some people genuinely yes. are happy to recommend and refer and open up their network to complete strangers. Others need to know you 10 years. Meet your wife, yeah. meet your kids, you know, and uh, yeah. and that, know your inside leg measurement before they'll 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 recommend you. Why do you think that is? So I I look at it as there there is a nuance to this idea of reciprocity that very very few people recognize and understand. And most of the time when we hear about the idea of reciprocity, the thought process is. I'm going to do something for you and then you're naturally going to want to do something for me. And that's kind of how the world, you know, that's how this sort of whole thing works. And really that's where this, how can I help you sort of opening came from because you had all these people kind of worshiping reciprocity and considering that to be the thing that was going to solve everything. But the thing that we forget about in regards to the nuances of reciprocity is that every single person has a reciprocity impulse as well as a reciprocity timeline. So I'll start with reciprocity impulse. There are some people who, if you do something for them, they it is like a hot potato. They have to throw it back to you. They can't, they can't just receive. They're just like, ah, here go. I must do something. And that's a very strong reciprocity impulse. So you'll find if somebody has a very, very strong reciprocity impulse, in many cases, even though they haven't done sort of that deep dive with you in terms of referring or recommending, that's their way of showing reciprocity and to, and to basically act on that reciprocity impulse. Now, there are people who don't have a very strong reciprocity impulse who in their life, they've always kind of gotten the things that they, they want. People have always kind of just done things for them. So they have this feeling of, well, this is just the way the world works. People just give me things, right? Like that's kind of how this, you know, how this all goes. So if they have a weak reciprocity impulse, you're going to need to spend a lot more time basically helping them understand that you need something like you do have to be more um uh, you know you have to be more proactive and explaining what they could help you with and how that help could you know could could work in regards in regards to a referral so if you are encountering somebody and they don't have a very strong reciprocity impulse you may think oh man like well, why aren't they, you know, why aren't they helping? Why aren't, but the thing is, they don't necessarily think that way. So you have to pay attention to that. And that's one of the nuances. But the second nuance is this idea of a reciprocity timeline. And there are some people who 
again, it comes to them. They want to give it back right away because they just want to, they want to make keep this all moving quickly, right? There are some people who they just want to do the referrals. They want to make it happen. But then there are others who there is a large amount of weight attached to their referrals and they know that. So they have a longer reciprocity timeline because they vet you. They figure out, should you get that introduction? Should you be connected to their network? And they will test to see, are you a person of your word? Are you doing the things that you say you're going to do? What kind of credibility do you already have? And the thing is, these people will take the time to vet. And I see it all the time where folks get all upset and, you know, uh, feel like, oh, well, that person never, you know, never refers me, et cetera. And you look at the person, it's like, well, yeah, they don't refer very often at all because they vet their people and they spend a lot of time vetting their people. So I think that if we don't pay attention to that nuance in reciprocity, we can have all sorts of mixed signals about, you know, is somebody referring us? Is they, you know, are they not referring us? How are they thinking about this? And that whole kind of process. A lot of that clearly comes down to communication. I think that there's a number of a number of questions or expansions on the topic that are springing to my mind. Um, one of them is, is to what, where do you think the right position is? You know, do you think it is good uh, to have a strong reciprocity re uh, reflex where you are looking to reciprocate with every time someone helps you. Um, do I mean, I'm not suggesting that not having one at all is a good thing and perhaps someone needs to address that. Um, yeah. But, you know, my, my approach, for example, is that, yes, I do feel I want to reciprocate, but actually I recognise that I might pay it forward and that the support mm -hmm. might come to you and I look at the network as a whole. And if you take reciprocity expectations out of a conversation, then it's it becomes much cleaner. Um, but as long mm -hmm. as the willingness to reciprocate is there if the opportunity comes. Um do you think it's good to sit and wait and be aware and willing to reciprocate when the time comes but not rush towards it? Where would you sit on that spectrum and how would you work with someone if you recognize that maybe they're not quite sat where the relationship needs them to be? Yeah, so the thing to understand is that these are these are things that are kind of deep-seated in us, right? So a reciprocity impulse comes usually from our background and sort of what our experience has been. So if people have uh, helped us and supported us in the past, when we've been in high states of need or when we've been in high you know, moments of challenge, then we usually have a very strong reciprocity impulse. If we've been educated, around relationship building in some way, and we've been exposed to this idea of reciprocity, we sometimes will have a stronger reciprocity impulse because we're sort of, you know, constant, you know, consistently thinking about it. So it's not so much that either way is good or bad to sort of be within the world. But the way that I like to think about it is the aspect of um, when I when I used to work in Broadway, I had a rule, which was fast to view, slow to recommend. So I would go and see lots and lots of shows. I would do a lot of things. I would be in the industry, but I wouldn't recommend investors and producers came to a show until I really felt this made sense. And this is a good, you know, and, and, and this is a good thing. Now, the thing is, that doesn't necessarily mean that I didn't reciprocate if somebody was kind or sort of thoughtful or, you know, said, hey, come and see, you know, see my show. It just meant that I was careful about the choices I made in terms of those referrals, in terms of those connections and sort of that particular process. So the thing is, I don't think it's so much that it's good or bad in terms of where your reciprocity impulse is or sort of how you, you know, how, how you form, because that's kind of who you are. I think it's more about as you identify sort of where you land for yourself or where somebody else lands, you start to think about how do I frame this conversation? How do I approach uh, this relationship? And you approach it 
in more of that sort of on case by case basis, as opposed to deciding because the the big issue, the reason why this uh, this nuance of reciprocity is often missed is the fact that we tend to think in right or wrong, as opposed to thinking in the context of well, each case has its own nuances. So I always look at it from that angle. I look at it from the angle of, okay, well, what's the experience that I'm having? Okay, this person has a very, very strong reciprocity impulse, right? They're asking me how they can help. They need, they feel like they need to, they, they feel like they need to help. Okay, great. Um, you know, what can I suggest or what can I mention to them that will help satisfy that, right? Or, you know what? It looks like this person doesn't have a very strong reciprocity impulse, but there are things that they're involved in that I'm interested in. So let me just ask them, you know, about if they have any ideas or if they have any thoughts as to what I'm trying to get across or what I'm trying to have happen. You know, if that is a referral saying, you know, this is the problem I solve. And I'm just curious, is there anybody that you know that fits this category that actually like falls into, you know, into this category or, you know, and if so, I would love to, I'd love to know more, you know, and just see kind of where it goes. And then you just sort of feel it out kind of as you, um, as you go from each sort of, uh, each sort of phase. I want to come back to this point that you, you, everyone's different and you, you know, you treat people differently. Cause I think that's an important question. Uh, but I want to, before we do that, you talked about when you were uh, a producer on Broadway, you, you, you would view quickly, recommend slowly, and you would be sure that it was the right thing for an investor before inviting them along to view. That comes down to trust. That comes down to giving yes. yourself the confidence to recommend, um, which which comes under the banner of trust, which is something uh, we've talked about time and again on the podcast because it's so important. So for you, what what is it that you think uh, makes people trust? And again, I know that everyone is slightly different on this uh, and, and people will be... Uh, motivated to trust for different reasons. It comes back to that question of people, I guess people who are quick um, to recommend are, are, are either happy to suspend distrust or they're quick to trust, to embrace trust, whereas people are slow, yeah. actually want full confidence before. What do you think are the key things people are looking for? Yeah, I think that when people look at trust, they look for consistency. Um, and I often have, have said that basically there are really only two steps to just completely blowing people's minds. And the first step is you do what you say you're going to do. The second step is you do it promptly. And, and most of the time, that's the bar. Most of the time... That's the biggest aspect. You know, if you say you're going to do something, if you commit to something, if you say that you're going to make an intro, support somebody in some way, read somebody's book, you know, whatever it is, do you follow through on that commitment? Do you do the thing that you say you're going to do? And if you do that on a consistent basis, if they know that every time that they ask you about something or that you say you're going to do something that you're going to do it, that level of trust goes up. But if you don't do it, if it sort of fall, you know, falls by the wayside, well, then that level of trust goes down. And I think that really that's at the heart of trust. We trust people who follow through and do what they say they're going to do. We trust people who respect the relationships that we have, right? And the relationships that we set up. We trust those people. And once we start to get to that point of trust, then yes, we're going to, referrals are going to happen faster. We're going to, we're going to recommend people more, the more trust we, we place in them. And it's that aspect of being consistent and doing what you say you're going to do. And I think that it seems, it seems rudimentary, like it seems like kind of the simplest of things. Um, but over and over and over again, we learn that simple is not easy. Yeah. Right? So. So, so to bring that to life a little bit, 
uh, when you were in that Broadway role and you you had that, you've gone to see a show, you think that there's potential there. What are you looking for before you are willing to recommend it to possible investors? Yeah. And, so and have you seen I, the show at yeah. that stage or is it a pitch? Yeah, I've um, I've done everything from go to a reading um, to go and see a show down, you know, go and see a show downtown that then I would recommend sort of up the chain. Mm. Right. Um, and the the way that I would look at it is I would first look at is it a quality, you know, is it a quality piece? Right. Is it a quality piece? But I wouldn't just recommend it based off of the fact that it was a quality piece. I would look at the people who worked on it. And look at, okay, well, what's their, you know, what's their process Sort of where do they stand, you know, where do they stand? Uh, if I got a chance to talk to somebody who had worked on it, uh, I would also pay attention to that. Like, how does this person sort of approach things? How do I feel? Like, what's my gut on sort of who that person, you know, who that person is? And then based on all of those factors, I'd say, okay. I think this can be recommended. Like, I think this is a really, really solid piece. And I think these are really solid people. Now, sometimes I might not have met the team, but I just thought the project was phenomenal. And if I would go to other producers, I'd say, listen, I do not know the team personally. I do not know these people, but I saw this. And I would feel bad if I didn't let you know about it. Like, I would feel bad if I didn't let you know about it, because it is just phenomenal. And I really think, you know, it's, it's something that's kind of undiscovered right now. And I, and I think it's worth, I, I think it's worth checking out. So that would be the way that I would approach it. So what you've just described there is what I call a qualified uh, recommendation or referral. So you're qualifying a statement with the limitations, whereas an unqualified one would be, oh, my God, these people are amazing, team is great, and the show is great. Um, so just sticking on that theme for a moment, because you yeah. know, I, I am – you know, as a theatre fan, I'm fascinated, um, uh, you know, by the industry, but I think this is, is applicable elsewhere. Uh, to what degree does word of mouth play – in the success of a show um, at all the different stages? And, and what are the key things beyond what you've talked about in terms of the background at the investment stage that really spark that word of mouth in the right places? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, word of mouth has a lot of power. Um, you know, I, I knew producers who would not go and see anything unless at least five people came to them and recommended it. Like I've known producers that that was sort of their bar. Um, you know, if they didn't hear about it from five different people, if five di different people didn't email them or call them and say, you need to see this, even though it might've gotten a bunch of awards, even though a bunch of people were talking about it, they wouldn't go. Right. Um, so, you know, it's that aspect of the word of mouth is very important. It is, you know, it's a big piece of the puzzle. People have to be talking about it in order for it to even remotely get the attention of the, you know, of the producer. Right. Um, but, you know, once that has happened, like once you've kind of gotten to that place of where, you know, of word of mouth, well, then it's a question of, okay, who are you getting in to see it? Because if you get somebody in to see it and they become an advocate for it, they can get a lot more people to come and see it, right? And talk about it and, and, and share it and all of those types of things. So a lot of the time that shifts uh, the the perspective, right? That shifts the way that the show is perceived as not now just a, oh, it's a word of mouth thing, but it's a word of mouth thing that's now being recommended once people have actually shown up. Because there's lots of instances where something gets word of mouth or a lot of people talk about something and then people go and they decide, yeah, it's uh, not really kind of worth the hype. Like it's not really, you know, it's it, it, it's not really there. There are those instances where that does happen. So, so I, I can see a very natural mirror to the to the world of general work, if you like, where uh, you need to get um, recognised for where your strengths are. You need to be recognised for the benefits of of what you deliver, uh, whatever that might be, as an individual, as an organisation, as a service, as a brand. Um, but also, the right people need to know about that so that you can get the word out there to the key influencers. But on top of that, you have to be consistent and deliver, which is your point you made earlier. And all those feed together quite nicely. Um, so we can yeah. learn from, from those different spaces, which 
you know, the, the, the idea of the podcast. We hope that you're taking away some valuable lessons from this edition of the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you would like support in developing, nurturing, and leveraging strong relationships to support you in your role, please visit andylapata.com forward slash mentoring. So I, I promise we would go back to those different scenarios, different types of people have mm-hmm. different ways of, um, you know, of viewing reciprocation, of deciding what their timeline for, for referral recommendation or reciprocating those that you've given them. Do you change your mm-hmm. behaviour depending on different personality types? Uh, and if you do, how do you manage how that's perceived if people see you behaving in different ways in different scenarios? Yeah, so it's it's one of those things where the behavior is relatively is is relatively the same, um, but I may be slower or faster with certain things, right? So let's just say, for example, I meet somebody and they've got a very strong reciprocity impulse, and they're also really good at vetting, and they're really solid, and it's just like it's it, it's just like we're connectors and we're just sort of like passing folks along to each other. And it's like this fun sort of, you know, sort of type of thing. I'm not really worried about that because this person has sort of gotten to that place where they have kind of the vetting piece in, in place. So even though they may not have a slow, you know, a low reciprocity impulse, um, there and they're, you know, and they're fast to it, maybe they, you know, they're just very good at, you know, vetting quickly and that type of thing. So we may, really send a bunch of intros back and forth to each other, right? Like we may on that call come up with a bunch of people that we want to, you know, put each other in touch with because it's just sort of a natural type of thing. But I might meet somebody who has a very strong reciprocity impulse, but it's very obvious that they do no vetting, right? So they're just like, oh, and here's this person that I think you should meet. And here's this person I think you should meet. And here's this person I think. So that person, I'm going to be actually much more careful about who I talk about, who I tell, you know, who I suggest that they, that they should meet because they're not doing any, they're, they're not doing any curating and it's going to be hard to have them just throwing people, you know, at, at somebody because they're so focused on that reciprocity, that, that reciprocity impulse, right? Um, if we go to the reciprocity timeline, and the people who really take a lot of a lot of time, I look at it as sort of like this window type of thing. So there are people in my in my circle who, if I make the wrong introduction, if I connect them to somebody and it's a bad experience, the window goes like this, mm. and then it goes like this, and then it goes like this, and it will close if I'm not thoughtful about who I'm sending their way. So for those people, I may spend a lot more time having a conversation about who is really a fit you know how do you want to be introduced if this is you know if this is something that you are interested in i'll of course always check with you first but what do you want to you know what kind of ground rules do you want to set you know so if i'm talking to somebody let's say for example who is an investor and they write checks and that's like their their thing right i will have a conversation with them about if I find a company that would be a good fit, is that a conversation that you want to have? Like, do you want to talk to somebody who is actively seeking, you know, actively seeking money? And if so, how do you want that to be handled? How do you want us to think, you know, to, to think about that? And then I'll go back to that person and say, listen, you know, they told me they don't want a direct pitch. So do not meet them and directly pitch them. Have a conversation, get the advice that you need to get, but treat that relationship not as a pitch. Whereas there are others who are like, yeah, send them to me, let them pitch. And I'll say, this person's open to your pitch. They want to hear what you have to say. They're open to it. They're interested in it. Go for it kind of thing. So again, we've got the same theme underlying what you're saying uh, as earlier, which is communication. Be clear in your communication, yep. listen very carefully and be able to, to, to adapt your behavior based on that, but also adapt how you communicate and make the connection based on that as well. Um, okay, so let's let's move on now to the individual who wants to be uh, more referable, uh, easier to recommend. Mm-hmm. 
how can you do that? How can you create a personal brand um, that people that makes people feel confident in you, even if they even if they haven't met you before? You know, I use the phrase, and I think you use something very similar as well. Um, uh, it's what people say about you when you're not in the room. Uh, yes, and, and, exactly. You know, getting that message out that gives people confidence in you before they've even met you. You talk about the producer who'll only see a show uh, if he's heard about it five times, which again is on a similar line. So how can people make that happen for themselves? Yeah. So there's three main things that you want to think about and it's easy to remember them because it spells the word aim. Uh, and that's accessibility, influence, and memory. So the very first hurdle you're always going to have is accessibility. Will people be able to understand what it is that you're actually doing for others in a way that if they were to explain it to somebody else, they will not feel awkward? And, And this is the thing. If you don't have that level of accessibility to whatever it is that you're offering, it's going to be very, very hard to get somebody to give you to give you a referral or to talk about you. Right. Because when we talk about some idea or person or individual with somebody else, it's a reflection on us. So if we feel like we don't quite understand it, what they do, and we're kind of like, we're like, I'm not quite sure how to explain it. We usually won't actually do the recommendation because we don't want to look silly in front of our friends, right? Like we don't want to look bad trying to explain a concept and and being like, well, they do this, but I'm not quite sure what it is. So, so the very first thing that you always have to think about is how accessible is this idea? How accessible is this concept of what it is that I'm actually doing, you know, for clients? Like how clear have I made this transformation? Can I say it in one sentence, right? Like, can I help people sort of see that in a very, very clear way? And if you haven't nailed that, it's really hard to do anything else. Um, The I is for influence. And the way that we often think about influence is that we think about it in the context of persuasion. We think about it in the context of, I want to get you to do something. So I'm going to influence you to do it through any number of tips and tricks and you know things like that. But true influence is when people do things without us asking them to. That's when we have true influence. And the only reason somebody's going to do something without you asking them to is if it makes them look better. So you always have to think, how does my idea, my concept, my offer, whatever it is, make somebody else look cool when they share it. And we don't think about that enough. We don't think about if somebody else were to say this, would they look cool in front of their friends? Would they look interesting in front of their friends? But the more that we package things in that way, where if somebody shares it, they look interesting and they look cool in front of the other person, the more likely that thing will be shared. But you could have accessibility and you can have the influence piece and you can still lose without memory. Because if somebody can't remember what it is that you are offering or sharing or what it is that you do or what it is that your brand's about, they will share somebody else's brand, somebody else's service, not because it's better than yours, but because it's easier to remember. So the way I like to think about this is if you want people to remember you more, you focus on less. And that's language, emotion, simplicity, and structure. So language is the first one. And the reason why most people know who Shakespeare is, but only a handful of English majors know who Christopher Marlowe is, even though they were writing around the same time, is that Shakespeare added new words to the English language. And people were going around using those words. And when you have your own language for things, when you have your own ways of saying things, it basically wedges like a piece of mental real estate in somebody's brain. They remember it. They think about it. And if you take the time to come up with your own way of saying things or play around with your own words, like those types of things, 
you're going to have a lot more of a memory trigger that you, you know, that, that you create. So for example, one of the things that I often talk about is the giver's fix. And I am basically taking two words that normally would not go together. The idea of a giver and the idea of a fix, which usually has a negative connotation when we think about drug addicts and, you know, those, you know, those types of, those types of scenarios. But I put them together and it, be, it makes you curious. And you're like, well, what's the giver's fix? And if I describe to you how when we are givers and we support others and we help others, we get a chemical reaction as a result of that giving. And as a result of that chemical reaction, we get this rush. And there are people who get hooked on that rush. And just like an addict, they just they they, they love feeling that they're giving and that they're helping and they never ask for what they need. And over time, just like the addict, they're never getting the things that they actually need. So they're deteriorating. They're falling apart. And that ties to the next principle. What I just described, the reason why a lot of people will remember the giver's fix in this interview is emotion. Because what I did was I added emotion to my description of this particular idea. And if you are a person who suffers from the giver's fix, or if you know somebody who suffers from the giver's fix, what happens is you were feeling something while I was explaining that. And when you imbue emotion and emotional language to something, it helps solidify the memory. We remember things when we are in heightened states of emotion, when we feel something. So if you combine the language that you have with the emotion that you have, you're making it that much easier to remember. And then if you make it simple, simplicity, simplicity is one of the most powerful tools because academics for all of our time have always rewarded complexity. If we were in school, we got the good grades for writing the big words and writing the big papers. And and we were always rewarded for being complex. But the memory rewards simplicity. So by me just making it very, very simple, right, and explaining this concept, it's easier to remember. And then the last piece, and this is why less is so effective, is structure. Because our brains need order in order to process information. We start somewhere and we go in a logical progression. It's the way our brains operate. We need a structure in order to carry that information. So when I say focus on less, language, emotion, simplicity, and structure, what I'm doing is I'm giving you an order to remember. I'm giving you a structure, which means you are more likely to share this. You are more likely to send this along because you have a package to put it in. And structure is one of the things that we often forget about, especially if we're doing a presentation, especially if we're doing a talk. How often have have you seen a talk where it felt like the person was going on forever and you were like, I don't know when it's going to end. And the reason for that was there wasn't a structure to follow. But because I've said less, you know that I've finished. You know that there's nothing, there isn't another S coming, Right. You know exactly where we are in the conversation, which makes you more comfortable listening and knowing, oh, okay, he has finished this explanation. How do you build that um, mnemonic acronym type structure into ordinary conversation? Let's move it away from the presentation scenario. How, to, to what degree would you use that structure in a one-to-one conversation? So I would very often tap into maybe one or two of them. So if I were talking to, uh, if I were talking to a potential client or if I were talking to a potential referral partner, maybe I'd throw out one of my terms, right? One of my concepts. And then I would see, I would see how do they react? Like, what do they think about it? Do they ask more questions about it? And then I would see what they ask next, right? So I would use certain terms or certain ideas or certain concepts and just see like what happens as a result of that, right? So for example, when I say referable brand and I break down this idea of having a referable brand, then I have lots of instances where people at the end of that conversation, even if they've just met me, will say, will you be on my podcast? I want to talk more about this idea, 
or this concept. And I may share an element of AIM, or I may just share the word referable brand. On that same note, let's say I'm talking to a client, um, and I say that one of the things that I help with a lot of the time is that there are people who they deprioritize the packaging of their intellectual property. So they never sit down and come up with that way to describe their big idea. And what am I doing? I'm tapping into the emotion because if that person has been putting off crafting their thought leadership, then they're saying that's me. Or they're saying, I know somebody who has sort of had that happen, right? Because I'm tapping into that emotion. And notice I'm always using simplicity. Have I said anything thus far in terms of having that conversation that hasn't been two or three words, right? And there's a structure there. There's always a structure to those conversations because somebody's going to ask you about what it is that you do or what it is that you offer. And the more that you can be very succinct and tap into that emotional component, use a little bit of your own language, the more curiosity you create. And if you create curiosity, people will ask you for more information. They'll ask you to uh, go on their show, to be introduced to their friend or whatever the scenario is. And the thing is, we we most of the time make the mistake of focusing on access. We're always about like, how do I get in front of people? How do I connect with certain people? And all these different types of things. But really, if we want access, all we really need to do is optimize for interest. If we create interest, if we get people to a point where they're like, tell me more you know, about that, they'll introduce us to anybody in, in many cases. And again, that goes back to what I was talking about. It's not because necessarily of what we are offering. It's because of how good it makes them look that they discovered this person has this whole new way of looking at things. There's a lot coming out of all that. We could start the podcast all over again purely on on questions (laughs) I have based on uh, on what you've just shared. Um, Let's start. We've we've got a few minutes, so so let's let's cover two or three of those things. Let's start with. I think it's a really important concept here, uh, building on the last point of engaging people's curiosity, because if you want people to retain the information to repeat it accurately in the way that you you talked about at the beginning of the answer um, they need to be a participant in the conversation so is it a key thing for you to uh, create to stimulate conversation rather than deliver presentation oh yes all the time i i focus on curiosity i i think about when I write my emails, I write a daily email. And when I write my emails, I think of my subject line. I think of how I want to frame how I want to frame it. And I think of my writing as like an episode of Breaking Bad. I want you to read that subject line as if it were the opening scene from a break from an episode of Breaking Bad, where you're just like, I I don't know what's going on. I need to try and figure it out. And I need to I need to read more. I need to look, you know, look into this more to figure out that information. And I love creating that type of dynamic. I'm always asking myself, not what can I add, but what can I take out? I'm always asking myself that. Every time I put something together, I say, okay, that's interesting. If I take out something, how much will this, you know, how much more curious will people be if I leave this concept out, if I leave this idea out, if I just frame it as this piece is uh you know is missing right and when i do that what happens people become enormously curious and they they follow up and they want to learn they want to know more right so so we're doing this live right and and if i said something on this on this call that was like a teaser right people would be motivated to contact me about whatever that teaser was Right. So if I said that there was something sort of rooted in psychology that can make it so that you never have a loss for coming up with ideas and I do it using a simple household chore, you're curious, aren't you? Yeah. Like you would, you would want to know like what that, you know, what that thing is. Right. Yeah. 
I'll give it to you real quick because I don't want it to. I I don't want to tease oh, anybody. Oh, I thought it was um, a hypothetical, right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'll give it to you real quick. Um, but it really, it, it really is a thing. Um, so our subconscious mind is where we usually fuse our ideas together. So if you're doing an activity that actually doesn't take a lot of thought, you're far more likely to come up with new ideas and fuse concepts together that you normally would not fuse together. So personally, I get most of my best ideas and subject lines for emails and all these different types of things when I'm doing the dishes. At the end of the day, it, because it's a very remote sort of automatic activity, and what that does is it allows my subconscious to just play, right? Because I'm so focused on doing the dishes and getting that, you know, and getting that work done that my my mind can just sort of wander. And that's where a lot of those connections come from. So any activity that falls into that category where you don't have to think about it uh, is a fantastic tool if you're ever feeling blocked or if you're ever feeling like you um, can't come up with new concepts. I remember many years ago, a dear friend of mine, uh, Kenny Harris, who passed away uh, sadly a few years ago, uh, he was a speaker Sorry. on creativity. Uh, thank you. And he... Um, he said, you get, you know, creativity-wise, you get your best ideas very often. His example was in the shower. So he actually yep. had uh, um, uh, marker pens, but the ones you can wipe off, <laughs> in the shower. Yeah. <laughs> and he would write his ideas on the tiles. Um, so, yep. you know, those little creativity tips, that one has always stuck with me. Um, with my walls, I think I might get in a lot of trouble if I, I tried that yeah. particular example. Um, but equally, having my iPhone near the shower isn't the best idea either. Uh, okay, I, look, as I said, we could carry on with this, but I've got one more question because of time. Uh, but I think it's something that, I, based on what you've just said, I think it's it's important to pick up on. Um, so I picked up a phrase from an American speaker. I, I'm not sure who. It was on a, a, a an NSA, National Speakers Association of America, uh, CD many years ago. Uh, and they talked about the, the, the importance of a message being two things, sticky and transferable. Mm -hmm. Sticky means you can remember mm -hmm. it accurately. Transferable means you can repeat it accurately, which I think is a lovely summary of what you shared uh, with us there. Yeah. Um, one thing that you use, but I don't think you specified, uh, which would be an important part of that to my mind, would be examples and stories. So what type mm. of role do they play for you in, in creating a message that, that enables people to recommend and refer you with ease? Yeah, I think that, you know, storytelling, there, there's all sorts of uh, information out there about um you know, this, what it does to the brain and how the brain lights up in sort of a different way. So anytime that you can attach a story or create a metaphor, uh, you know, for something, you're going to have a higher level of comprehension, right? You're going to have a higher level of understanding. Uh, and, you know, back to when I was an English teacher, like if you could get the kids to sort of see the concept in the idea of a story, they would actually remember a lot more concepts if you yeah. tried to put those concepts into a story or some kind of metaphor. So we're all that way. Like if we have a story or a metaphor that's presented to us, it's going to make it much, much easier to tell somebody else about it to sort of break that, you know, break that concept down. The way I think about it in regards to content um, is I like to think about it as tell a story, teach a lesson, give them homework right? Um, tell them something that's interesting. Say, this is why I'm telling you this story. This is the lesson, you know, here. And here's something that you can do. Here's something that will help you within this moment. And it works very well as well in presentations. For anybody who's doing presentations, you know, it works incredibly well to be like, okay, I'm tell a story. I'm going to teach a lesson about it. And then I'm going to give you this activity to do. So that you can experience it for yourself. So you can go through that, you know, that process and people will remember it because they'll remember experiencing it. They'll remember thinking about whatever that concept was or whatever that, you know, that thing is. They might even remember the group that they were in when they did that exercise or, you know, how, however it works. So, so that's the way that I would think about that. Yeah. And look, we, it is something we've covered 
uh, on the podcast before a number of times. Uh, one of our, I believe, mutual friends, Todd Churches, um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, joined me to talk about his visual leadership concept. Stories, metaphors were a core part of that. Uh, another podcast where we, we got all Shakespearean, uh, as we would with Todd, another uh, English teacher. Um uh, and I think it's it's a core part of the, getting that message across, uh, Michael. I, <laughs> I'm going to repeat myself again. We could carry on uh, for ages on this. I think we've we've really just started to <laughs> dig into the topic. It, it's interesting for me as someone who who talks specifically on the same topic as you to take the seat as interviewer rather than interviewee on this topic and, and shut up <laughs> to a degree. And just let you <laughs> chat because I wanted to be bursting in and say yes and yes. Um, but I hope that um, the combination of the two of us has, has made it more interesting um, uh, yeah. for listeners to the podcast uh, than just me wittering on about it. Uh, I really appreciate your perspective. It's, it's something that I can back um, completely, uh, which is why I joined. Uh, you know, invited you on. So thank you very much, so much. for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was an absolute blast, and uh, yeah, I loved all the different uh, all the different directions we went uh, we we went with this one. It was a lot of fun. Definitely, and there were more to more more to travel. So thank you again to Michael for his generosity uh, and his time. Uh, as I said at the very beginning, it's interesting for me when I'm talking to someone in the same space, uh, as I have to bite my lip and let them answer the questions. Uh, and I think that Michael did that brilliantly, adding a great richness to the topic. And I hope that you found that useful and a great compliment to the work that I've shared as well, both on this podcast and elsewhere. One thing that Michael shared that really caught my attention was when he talked about reciprocity and how people uh, approach it in different ways and the different nuances. I think that's shone uh, a very original light on the topic uh, and one that makes a lot of sense as well. So when you're looking at your network and you're, you're frustrated that you've supported someone but they haven't supported you back, uh, maybe Michael's words will help you understand where they're coming from a little bit more and change the conversation so that you get the support that you, that you need. I hope that you're enjoying the Connected Leadership Podcast. We've got more episodes coming your way uh, on a a weekly basis on Mondays. So make sure that you subscribe on the podcast channel that you listen to us on. And if you're enjoying it, uh, please do leave a review, leave a rating. It makes all of the difference. Either way, I look forward to seeing you again very soon on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Social media and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great connected leadership tips.